Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. This is Eleanor Rangers, one of the moderators of this podcast. You may have wondered over the course of our first season, just who are the co-moderators of Space 3D? Emily Carney, Tom Hill and I. And what makes us qualified to discuss space topics in the first place? Well... I don't know about qualifications per se, but we're all certainly space enthusiasts, and at least one of us truly works in the aerospace industry. So we decided to interview ourselves for this episode of Space 3D. We'll let you decide if we're acceptable as moderators for this venture. First up is myself, Eleanor Rangers, followed by Emily Carney, and finally, Tom Hill. Your background is obviously uh, medicine. You know, what led you to your interest in that subject and, you know, the connection between space flight and space medicine, too? <clears throat> well, it's a kind of a roundabout way in which I, I came into this. I'm a pharmacist by profession, a clinical pharmacist, and had been in clinical practice for a short period of time <clears throat> with a specialty in cardiovascular uh, pharmacology. And um, really, my training suited me really to go into academia, but I wasn't really sold on that when I got out of my training. So I went into clinical practice with the Veterans Administration in Baltimore. I was there for about two years and began to realize that maybe I didn't, I really didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. Um, So I started considering other opportunities and wound up going into the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, Basically, um, going out of direct clinical practice, but 
the role in industry would be educating healthcare providers about the medications that the particular company I'd be working for, you know, was involved in or talking about the disease area that those medications would be used in. So fortunately, most of my career within the industry was in the cardiovascular area, which I knew very well. So I was very fortunate um, in that regard. And I've worked for a couple of different companies and and also left industry for a while and worked for essentially subcontractors to the industry doing consultant work, mostly again in the cardiovascular area for market te- marketing teams and for the medical teams, particularly with um, medications that are not on the market yet. So helping helping with uh, some of the preparation that goes goes on behind the scenes to bring a product to market. But then I got back into the industry a couple of years ago, <clears throat> kind of went back over the fence and started doing that. So that's kind of my day job. But the space-related stuff, that really started back in the mid-90s. Up until that point in time, I think my only recollection from childhood about the space program were two things. Well, three things. One was I remember my mother sitting me down in front of the television. It had to have been during some of the latter lunar missions. And I remember sitting down in front of the television at my grandmother's house and my mom telling me, watch this. It's very, very important. And I remember Walter Cronkite's voice. And I remember watching the launch of the Saturn Vs. And I remember being fascinated with the staging of the rocket. But that's like kind of all I remember as a very young child. I also remember having a coloring book, um, an Apollo 11 coloring book. And then that's it. You know, I, I didn't pay attention really to that stuff at all. I vaguely remember Skylab. I remember seeing something on a Saturday morning program that was called In the News uh, that was on CBS between the cartoons. Yeah, that was a cool show. Um, I actually have tried to find the footage of the Skylab episode that they ran. And I, it, I've been able to find the date that it ran, but I haven't been able to find the actual footage just to kind of relive that. But I remember being fascinated by the, the floor and like with the cleats, with the triangle yes. cleat <laughs> in the shoes that they wear. Um, for some reason that made a big impression on me, but those are kind of the few things I remember from childhood. Fast forward, you know, like 20 years later, I was, uh, one night watching some documentaries on PBS. It was like the week of the celebrating the lunar landing. And this was coming up on the 25th anniversary of Apollo 11. And that night uh, on the local PBS affiliate in the DC area, um, they, they had the NASA documentary um, Apollo 13 to the edge and back. Well, I, I never paid attention to this as a kid. I was watching this thing like, Oh my God. You know, I'm like bawling at the end of it when they they have Gene Krantz crying at the end. I'm like, Oh my God. That was, I mean, that really blew my socks off. And then there was a documentary on Apollo 11. I mean, I was hooked after that. And um, then immediately I was like, Oh my God, I have to go down to the Air and Space Museum because I have to see the lunar module. I dragged one of my friends down there to, to see it. And, uh, you know, that's sort of how it's, how my, enthusiasm started and that summer this was like in 1994-95 that summer's when lost moon came out the the book about apollo 13 and that um i found out that jim lovell was going to be at the museum like i think it was in september i was like oh my gosh i have to go 
long story short, I ended up going to that talk and I met a couple of docents from the museum that night and they mentioned to me that there was a new class starting. So I thought, wow, that would be really cool to be a tour guide and be able to educate the public and maybe I can get them enthusiastic about the space, interviewed to be a docent. And that's how, you know, I ended up kind of getting involved just educationally with the program. And then along with that, um, gradually had, you know, wondered about medical issues with space and just started educating myself, to be honest. And that's, you know, that's kind of the genesis of, of where it went. And it's just kind of grown over the years. So how about you, Emily? How did, how did you get into it? Oh, well, I started really early. Basically what happened was I, I, I was born in Clearwater, Florida, which is actually, um, across from uh, the Space Coast. It's roughly around 140 miles uh, away. As a kid, I lived in a city uh, called Oldsmar, Florida, which is, again, roughly, you know, kind of in the same general area. It's, it's roughly about, you know, 140 miles, give or take, from the Space Coast area, about two and a half hours out. As a kid, you know, in my really early childhood, my first really vague spaceflight memory was when Skylab came down because people were really freaked out about it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure why, because most of the Earth is made of water, but... Uh, People really thought it was going to, like, hit, you know, houses and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, so, like, you know, I mean, I, I vaguely remember people thought this was really serious. It, it turned, I mean, it it did, parts of it did hit Western Australia, but it didn't, I don't think it, you know, obviously it didn't injure anybody, thank God. But um, my next very vivid spaceflight memory was in uh, late 1981. I remember this. I remember the space shuttle had just started, basically. The the program had just started flying. And I remember it was uh, late that year, and I was I was real small. My mom was like, oh, let's go outside and, you know, watch the space shuttle go up. I knew what the space shuttle was, so we went outside and we looked towards, you know, the, the east, uh, the Cape Canaveral area, and all of a sudden you saw this light going up in the sky. You could see it pretty vividly from where I was. I mean, I was just, oh, my God. God, I knew it was going to space. From then on, I was just obsessed with space flight. So pretty much from the moment I've been three on, I've just been obsessed with space flight. It's ironic both your mom and my mom kind of <laughs> maybe was the, you know, the impetus to having us, uh, you know, look at the TV or look in the sky. That's kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was kind of neat, you know, and I don't think she really had the intention of making me into a space nerd, but that's definitely what happened. <laughs> so it was really cool. But, um, yeah, and that was, uh, it's funny that mission, uh, incidentally was STS2. And it's funny because, um, this is crazy. Exactly 35 years to the date of that mission, I met Joe Engel, the guy who flew that mission. And wow. I mean, it was like everything. I, I hate this cliche, but it really was like everything had come full circle for me, you know? So that was, mm -hmm. that was really cool. But pretty much ever since that moment, I, I was pretty, uh, I was a space enthusiast. And from that moment on, and then grew older and, um, I, I still was into, you know, I still had an interest in space flight, but, you know, my life kind of went on to other things. When I was eight, 18, I signed up for the Navy. And when I was 19, I, I went to boot camp. And I was in the Navy for uh, six years, uh, active duty. I don't know. I, I always I enjoyed reading about space flight. And, you know, I had a lot of space flight books and things like that. But I never imagined I could do anything related to it. So finally, around uh, 2010, 
what happened was I, I was a teacher for a brief time and I didn't really like it. So I left that career and I went back to work. I got a part-time job at a, at a retail store spraying perfume on people. I mean, really <laughs> didn't, you know, not a really glamorous job at all. I was at the department store and I was just kind of, you know, the store was quiet. Nobody was there. And I was just brainstorming. I'm like, Emily, what do you really like to write about? Because, you know, my thing is, if you're going to start a blog or if you're going to write, it kind of helps you to focus, I guess, on a particular area. So I really love space flight. You know, I would love to write about it. But at the time, I thought, I don't know anything about this. There are writers that I admired for years, like Andy Chaikin and you know, people like that, Colin Burgess, uh, Phil Clark. At that time, I was like, man, I could never be on the same level as anybody like that. So I kind of talked myself out of writing in that sort of field. And then I was like, screw it all. I'm just going to start a space flight blog. So in 2010, I started uh, with like, a handful of notes I scribbled on a notepad at my day job at my at the department store. I started a blog called uh, This Space Available. First, it started out as a not a very serious uh, spaceflight blog about just random things and space history. And at first, it wasn't very good. It's, it's gotten a lot better over the last eight years, I would say. When I first started, I look back at some of the things I first wrote, and I'm like, man, ugh, I don't know where I was going with that. I think it has improved over the last decades, which is good. What was your first blog entry? You know, this is really funny. It actually is about, uh, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but it was actually about the Apollo 15 stamp scandal. That's what it was about. Because that was something that I always was like, I always thought, God, there's got to be more to the story than what we've been told. Because I thought it was very odd that they would be kind of hung out to dry while, you know, there were other people who had done similar things who got, you know, who had kind of escaped any kind of punishment, but yet they were kind of hung out to be an example. So I thought that was kind of a very, an unusual story. And plus, I hate to say it, it, it gathers attention because it's a scandal. The ironic thing is about a year later, after I wrote that blog, uh, a book came out by uh, the mission's uh, command pilot, Al Warden, and he really set the record straight on a lot of things that went on so that was kind of amazing in a way but that was the first blog I wrote I wrote about and uh, if you look back some of the stuff I wrote was not very good uh, some of it's just stupid memes that I made at the time yeah so <laughs> I think I've improved a lot over the last uh, eight years or so yeah you've persisted with it and you know and now now you have a you know you're working on some other things that uh soon to be announced. So I, I think it's fantastic. I, you know, I can write, but it's, I've always struggled with it. It doesn't come naturally to me. So I, I really admire people that are able to actually put an entire blog or, you know, books or whatever together. I just, that's amazing. To yeah. Me. Oh, thank you. It is, it's become more of a, as I've gotten more busy, it's become more of a challenge just because I, I, there's this, I wouldn't say I have a certain like technique I adhere to or anything, but it's just, you know, I like to be very focused, and I like to really hammer down what I'm trying to say. But one more thing, I did start a group in 2011 uh, called Space Hipsters, and uh, we did start with only four people, and now it's almost 15,000 people. So that was something else that happened during this time. So it's been pretty wild. I didn't think that many people liked space, so it's been kind of a wild ride. No, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been on a couple of the... Uh 
field trips and, um, you know, certainly have met up with some people in the Chicago area primarily, and it's been great. It is nice to realize there's a certain camaraderie when you can encounter people that have uh, mutual enthusiasm for space flight. So uh, it's it's a great thing. So yeah, thank you for for starting that Facebook page. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun to read this posts and stuff too. I am one of the few people who uh, I am doing exactly what I said I wanted to do when I grew up. I uh, we never quite figured out where I got the idea, but when I was about six, according to family legend, I started telling people I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. Whenever I got to like a new school, I went, I asked where the space section was and found the all the new books that I could sign out. Turns out, no matter where I am, whether I'm working at the Pentagon or at NASA or at NOAA or wherever I'm working, I'm the space guy because I just I'm constantly following the news and you know people ask me what's going on with it. So it's just kind of, it's been in my blood all along. So went to, went to college right after high school, knew I needed to find a way to pay for it. And that got me into the air force. And then when I graduated from there, got commissioned, I got sent space command. So I was working at Falcon air force base back when they, back when they called it that now it's called Shriver air force base in Colorado Springs worked my uh, my biggest claim to fame as far as everyday people's lives, yeah, there's probably a couple, but I uh, I helped with the early orbit activation of 13 of the first 24 GPS satellites that were part of the operational constellation. Yeah, that was that was neat, and it was it was back in the early 90s when when I said GPS, people would say what. So I bought one of the first handheld GPS receivers. It cost $350 in 1992 or three, and it ran off six AA batteries, would run for about two hours, and it didn't have any maps installed because memory was too expensive at the time, but it had a plot feature where you could write your name in your front yard. You know, you could walk the path that was your name and it would record it on the, on the screen, but just off the GPS signals. Uh, so yeah, that was my, my first assignment. I was doing uh, early orbit with uh, spacecraft. Then I went, I served overseas for a year in Turkey. We had a space track site there where I actually got to track uh, Vanguard, the, uh, the successful Vanguard that's still up there. It's the, the oldest remaining object. We got to track that. That was fun. I did that for a year. And then uh, to come back, and I went to Vandenberg Air Force Base to work launch operations. Had a, had a moment. We launched a weather satellite on a Titan II rocket. And this was back in the days. There was one control center that was still actually on light. Because I don't know if you remember, in 1997, a Delta II exploded as it was lifting off from the Cape. And pieces of the solid motors landed around the control center and, like, fried people's cars and stuff like that because yeah. they, they'd parked on the facility. So the Titan II didn't have any solid motors on it. So they said, well, we're not going to upgrade that. We only have a couple more of those anyway. So I was on the launch site 1,200 feet away from that rocket when it lit up. That was cool. It was funny because we, um, we were in the final moments of the countdown. And we're in the we're in the blockhouse, and everything's just quiet because nothing. We we'd had a, some problems, and we were we'd worked them out, so everything was just quiet. And there was this pause, 
And then I, I clicked off the net and just said to everybody who was in the room, it's like, now we know why movies have soundtracks because this sounds notoriously boring. You have no idea. You know, if you just saw this picture, it'd be like just a bunch of people staring at stuff. So you need a soundtrack in a movie to, to show how tense it should be. So in, um, in 1999, it was looking like I was going to go to the missile field for my next assignment, which I felt that wasn't the best way I could uh, serve the country. So I, uh, I got out of active duty and uh, joined the Air Force Reserves, stayed with that until I retired in 2014, went into work in the aerospace industry. And if I reveal the company that I work for, then they have to review this entire interview before it can be posted. So I will not mention the name of the company that I work for. I figure, I figure, you, I figure we don't want to go through review. So, so <laughs> any articles I write says uh, I am an engineer in the aerospace industry. So my first uh, job out of the Air Force, I was working with weather satellites. And uh, it's actually, it's a generation of satellites that launched, the first one launched in 2006. And there were three of them. And they are just now being replaced by the new generation of satellites. If you've heard of GOES-R that launched, that launched in 20, late 2016, that's replacing some of the ones that I worked on. And I did that for about six years and then uh, worked with Landsat, the uh, land survey satellite run by the U.S. Geological Survey. But I had a meeting with some people from the Mars Society and I said, I can't make 11 o'clock can we make it 11.15 because I have to do a maneuver with my satellite? And they said, you know, that's unique enough. Absolutely. We'll, we'll wait till 11.15. So, yeah, I did that for a while and uh, still, still doing other stuff related to space. I've helped out NASA with some of their um, – they've realized that space isn't a fully friendly place anymore. I've helped them uh, try to get ready for responding in case somebody starts messing with our satellites. I helped uh, with the new the new GOES spacecraft with um, with rehearsals mission rehearsals. We'd get the team ready to go for launch. So it's been it's been exciting career wise. Tom, did you ever want to be an astronaut? Um, not early on. I did didn't want to. I wanted to build. I wanted to build what uh, what they flew on. But I'll tell you, actually, the movie The Right Stuff. I saw it in high school. That was the first time I had a, an inkling of wanting to be wanting to be an astronaut. I've applied uh, twice, once while I was active duty in the Air Force. And when you're active duty, you have to apply to the Air Force first, and then they decide whether or not they send you, they send your applications on. Uh, they decided not to. And then another time I applied while I was a civilian and I, uh, I sent my application directly in. That was the first year that you had to apply through the uh, personnel system in the Air Force or the uh, the uh, U.S. government. And everybody's like, well, they're just treating you like a civil servant. It's like, well, they are civil servants. Sorry. So I applied that way and I got the impression that I was working at the wrong space center. You either, it seemed like you either had to be a pilot or work at Johnson Space Center to get in. So plus by that point, I was getting towards the high end of the ages that they accept people anyway. So how about you, Emily? Did you ever want to be an astronaut? Yes. Uh, yeah, I did. God, I, I still... Uh... I don't think I'd ever make it, you know, the, I never applied, obviously. I, I don't have near the uh, educational background or uh, it, to do such a thing or, or the uh, experience that, to do such a thing. Uh, I, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, even though it's probably a pipe dream at this point, I, I still fantasize very much about going to space, even though uh, 
as I get older, it's it's a more distant dream. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe if this commercial thing hits, it, there'll be a possibility for someone like me to, you know, go to space someday, just a regular schmuck who doesn't really have any experience in that kind of area. <laughs> so I still do well, fantasize about Yeah, they, they want to open it up to anybody. I mean, Virgin Galactic's, tra- you know, run people on the, on the centrifuge between, uh, I think ages like adolescence up to age like 88. Wow. So, okay. yeah. See, I didn't even know that they had, uh, done that, you know, because, uh, yeah, as I get older and more, you know, <laughs> I just, you know, more achy and stuff. I'm like, man, you know, I, I, but I, it's something, you know, I still fantasize about, obviously, but, you know, I never applied to NASA or anything. I've applied to NASA in non-astronaut positions, but not for anything such as that. I, w- I was not remotely qualified to do anything like that. Very rare group of people. I always feel grossly inferior whenever I look at their resumes. Yeah. Uh, probably the most inadequate I've ever felt is looking at a Story Musgrave's resume. <laughs> like, I should just quit. Like, this is a joke, you know? Okay. He has like seven PhDs. It's not even fair, you know. I want to know how he had time to do that in with his astronaut duties. That's the other thing that amazes. Me. I have no idea. I was at a uh, conference where Mar- uh, Robert Zubrin was asked how he does so much because he's written plays and all this, and he says, "I don't watch television." <laughs> I didn't know Bob Zuber's written plays. Yeah, yeah, he wrote a play about Benedict Arnold. Have you read his uh have you read his comedy novel about the war on terror? Yeah, it's called The Holy Land and it's uh it's a hoot. <laughs> really? That's really that's interesting. I never knew that. Wow. See I didn't even know that. That's amazing. Well, I could say I never, never really had a desire to apply to be an astronaut. In some respects, I think because I have this interest in space medicine and physiology, it kind of, um, I think it kind of scares me too much about thinking about the realities of all the things that happen to you in, in space. I have had a dream about floating in space one time. It was a very vivid dream. And I would like to experience that maybe someday, but I could always do that with you know, like with the vomit comet rides and things like that. But I, d- I don't know if I would be cut out to to be up there for the for the long duration. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space 3D. Next time, we'll reflect on season one and look ahead to our second season due out this fall 2018. For Space 3D, this is Eleanor O'Rangers.